this is not an easy message. Uh, I've been praying a lot about it this week because it's it's an important message. It it is one of the most beautiful, baffling, uh, astonishing attributes of God that I know of. Uh, And I hope that you leave with a sense of wonder. Now, what is it? You already sang about it. Holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty. And then that stanza that says, God in three persons, blessed Trinity. We say that. Do we have any idea what we mean when we say it? Uh, We're in the middle of this series on the Gospel of Mark. Actually, we're just kind of at the beginning, aren't we? We've been at it. This is the week, uh, third week, and we're still on verse 9. But we'll pick up the pace just a little bit. Uh, the, the dilemma is that, I mean, Mark is a man of great economy. He doesn't mince words, and he doesn't save all the best stuff for later, sort of building suspension. He leads with the great stuff. Right off the bat, he tells us this is the beginning of the gospel about who? about Jesus. This is good news about Jesus. Who is Jesus? Again, right there in the first sentence. He is the Christ. Remember, that's not his name. That's a title given. A regal title means one anointed as king. So this is the good news that the king has come. Who is this king? Again, first verse, he is the son of God. Mark leads with the very best stuff, as if to say that I don't want anybody to miss the idea that God's intent, uh, his his sense of, of love and burden for the world is so vast that no limit was was too uh, was too strict or too stern that he would come crashing through the walls that separated us in Jesus. Then, having proclaimed that news. Jesus makes his first appearance here in this section in verse 9. Again, the the Gospel of Mark is the first recorded history that we have of the life and the work of Jesus. So this is the first account that we have in written history of the appearance of Jesus. And in these first five verses of the account of Jesus' appearance, verses 9 through 13, You're given, and you won't find this language in here, but bear with me. You're given a description of a great dance that has been going on from eternity present through eternity future and rooting back to the eternal past, that there is this dance. And then there's an invitation to come and and get swept up with it, to be part of it. And it's Jesus who's doing the inviting. Now that sounds all very cryptic. What what could I possibly mean that uh, that there's a dance? And what business does a 55 year old white pastor have talking about dancing anyway? But uh, let me show you. Uh, and it's it's beautiful. It's going to take some time, but it's it's beautiful. Look at verses 10 and 11. Very short. Jesus is coming up out of the water. He saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit of God descending on him like a dove. And a voice comes from heaven, you are my son, whom I love, and with you I am well pleased. There are three persons in that one passage. Who is it that's emerging from the waters of baptism? There's a voice speaking to Jesus. Whose voice is it? God. And then you have this beautiful description of something descending dove-like. 
And we recognize that as Holy Spirit. All three persons of God present in the one account. And again, it's right there at the very beginning. Mark is going to lead with all the best stuff. Let's, let's start with that beautiful image of a dove. Because for us, we read that and we envision it and we think, of course, the Holy Spirit, a dove. You know, we, we've, seen, we've seen it on church logos. We see it in stained glass. We just imagine that this is, this is a symbol of the presence of God. Uh, and while, while we assume that, uh, that was absolutely not an understanding that anybody had in the first century. When Mark was writing, this is very rare. In fact, there's only one place that we know of in all of Judaism where this is mentioned. And let me show you where it is, because it's kind of, to me, it's kind of fascinating. Um, do you know Jesus didn't read the Bible in the original language either? I mean, we know that we don't. Most of us don't. We don't speak Hebrew, the Old Testament. Uh, we don't speak Greek. Uh, most of the people of the world in Jesus' day didn't speak Hebrew either, and neither did Jesus. He read the Bible, like you and I do, in a translation. He read it in Aramaic. And when they were translating the Bible from Hebrew into Aramaic, they came across these verses very early on in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, where it says that the Holy Spirit hovered across the face of the waters. These are kind of like the, the primordial waters of creation. B- before the big drum roll and God really gets busy and creation starts, there's chaos, and then there's the water, and then there's the Spirit of God. And the word literally is flutter. The Spirit of God fluttering over the surface of the waters. And so translators were, as translators often do, trying to figure out how do we say this in the most evocative, meaningful way possible so that people understand. And they wrote it down, and this was the translation that they came up with. Genesis 1, verse 2. These would have been the words that Jesus and his disciples heard when they read from Genesis. It says, The earth was without form and empty. There was darkness on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God fluttered above the face of the waters. And here's what the translators added. Like a dove. Like a dove. And then God spoke and said, let there be light. And the grand work of creation begins. In the very earliest moments of the story of the creation of the world, you see that there are three parties at work. There's God, the Father, God the Creator. There's God the Spirit, described evocatively as fluttering like a dove over the waters. I don't think that means God is a bird, by the way. It's meant to conjure up an idea. And then there is the Word of God. Not words, Word, capital W. As if to say, this is the creative power of God. When He speaks, things come into existence. God the Father, God the Spirit, and God the Word. Let me take you to one of the other Gospels before we come back to Mark. The Gospel of John that you know, right? Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 1. Listen for the same familiar refrain. In the beginning was the Word, capital W. The Word was with God. The Word was God. And then if you read down further, around verse 32, it says, And then we saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove. Creation is the act of a triune God, Father, Word, or Son. 
and Holy Spirit. And what Mark is doing, I think unmistakably, in the very opening pages of his gospel, is he's drawing people's attention back to the earliest moments of creation. He's saying, you know, remember, creation was the act of a triune God. The recreation of the world, the salvation of the world, the renewal of the world is also going to be the project of the same triune God. Okay, pastor, so... So what? Uh, I mean, why is that important? One God, three persons. Why, why is that important? In fact, what does that even mean? I mean, let's, let's acknowledge that on the surface, this idea of the Trinity, uh, it melts mental circuits, right? Three is one, one is three. It sounds like bad math. It's hard to get your heads around it, that God is one God, and yet externally or eternally existing in, in three persons that are in constant communal orbit around each other. It's not tritheism. It's not three different gods who come together and form a committee like a ruling party over the universe. And it's not, and I don't think there's a word for it, but unipersonalism, like just, just one person, one God, and you know, sometimes he takes on this form and sometimes he takes that form, but same, same God. You know, kind of like the Greek gods who like to every once in a while take on flesh and mess around with mortals and have kids. And it's not that either. Trinitarianism says that it's one God in three persons. And he's not fundamentally more one than three or fundamentally more three than one. And we say, okay, that's difficult. Yeah, you better believe it's difficult. It's mysterious. It's wondrous. It's beautiful. Would you expect anything less of God. And what I hope that you will leave with today is a sense of just what life-shaping, glorious implications that this idea, this understanding of God have. It just explodes with possibilities. The first one is this. If it's true that the world has been created in the image of a triune God, then ultimate reality is, in fact, a dance. Let's use that word, a dance, where people are moving back and forth, orbiting around each other in this eternal reality of oneness and threeness. Jesus comes up out of the waters. The Father envelops him, covers him with his love. You are my son says, with whom I am well pleased. And then the spirit descends, enveloping him with power. And when you see what Mark is really showing us here, you're actually looking at the very heart of reality. This is what existence, raw existence looks like. The interior life of God, this rich community, a dance, father, son, and Holy Spirit. What are they doing? Gospel John chapter 17 says, among other things, they're glorifying each other. Hold on to that. We'll come back to that word, glorify. What does it mean? Let me uh, give you a couple of quotes from people way smarter than I am, because this is a tough one. First, you know, C.S. Lewis. Second, a man named Cornelius Plantiga, who's a brilliant philosopher, theologian. We'll just kind of interweave them together. C.S. Lewis says, in Christianity, God is not an impersonal thing. Or a static thing. He's not even just a solitary person. God is this dynamic, 
pulsating activity, a life, a drama, almost, Lewis says, if you will not think me too irreverent, a kind of dance. Lewis was Anglican, but his apprehension around using the word dance means he has the soul of a Baptist. Cornelius Plantiga says, see, the Bible says the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are glorifying one another. That means that the persons of God exalt and commune with and defer to one another. Each harbors the others at the center of their being in constant movement of overture and acceptance. Each person encircles the other and God's interior light overflows with self-giving love for others. Back to Lewis, and this is the last one. Lewis says, hey, what does it matter? It matters, Lewis responds, more than anything else in the world for the whole dance or drama or pattern of this three-person life is played out in each of us. They are the Trinity, the great fountain of energy and beauty spurting up at the very center of reality and there's no other way to the happiness for which we have been made. How do we talk about the Trinity like a dance? Uh, Here's why, I think. If you're going to physically depict, graphically depict what selfishness looks like, what self-centeredness looks like, it's stationary. A person who is profoundly self-centered doesn't move. They expect that the world moves in orbit around them. They are the center of their universe. Everything exists rotating around their own needs. You might like to give to the poor, sure, as long as it makes you feel good and as long as it doesn't cut too much into your own lifestyle. You might have friends, you might fall in love, you might even get married, as long as there is no compromise to your own self-interest. What makes you happy, what drives your needs. Self-centeredness makes everything else the means to an end. It's non-negotiable. I'll play with people, I'll talk with people, but let's be clear. The world orients around my needs. I'm stationary. But the understanding of God is something utterly different. Instead of self-centeredness, you have Father, Son, and Holy Spirit characterized in their very essence. This is raw existence as mutually self-giving and self-loving, moving in constant orbit around each other. None insists that they get central priority and attention. The one glorifies the other. They adore one another. They serve. They defer. They put the interests of others above their own. That's the nature of divine reality, a dance pulsating and and rhythmic, a a dance of joy, pouring out love and adoration, each one deferring to the other. That's the dance. And if that's ultimate reality, if that's been going on from all eternity, if that's the God who makes the universe, you realize the implications of that? Let's just ponder it for a second. Hopefully that warms you up in here. If God is solitary, unipersonal, It means that until the world began, there was no love. Doesn't love require an object to receive it and a subject to give it? It's impossible if God is solitary. 
So that would mean that until God created the world and other beings, a unipersonal God did not love. So love could not be the essence of the character of God. Relationship is not the heart of God. The essence of God might be power or, or, or greatness, but it's not love. The Trinity, the idea of the Trinity, this, this dynamic unity and, and interplay, I mean, it just takes our understanding of God off the charts. Another observation. If God is solitary, unipersonal, it means that, that the nature of divine reality is individualistic. Uh, the most important thing about God and about things that God created is that they are individuals formed for the fulfillment of their own needs, driven by their own rights. In other words, you run the risk if you, if you follow this solitary, unipersonal God of, of making an idol out of the individual. And it's a risk that we have been particularly vulnerable to now for more than a century. But you see, if God is... Is triune. Is this community of of persons in orbit around one another? It leads us, I think, to a beautiful understanding of what it means to be human beings living in society together. If the world was made by a triune God, then relationships and love are what the world is really about. If there's no God at all. I mean, if the secularists are right and we're all just here by blind chance, strictly a result of natural selection or whatever forces, not God doing any of the selecting, uh, then all that you and I can ever call love is really just a chemical condition of the brain. Evolutionary biologists will tell us this, that there is nothing that, that isn't here strictly because it helped our ancestors pass on their genetic code better than something else. If you feel love, it's only because that feeling enables you to survive and gets your body parts connected with other body parts so that your genetic code, your DNA gets passed on. That's all love is, nothing more than chemistry. But if, if from all eternity endlessly and beginninglessly, if that's a word, sure it's a word, beginninglessly and endlessly, if ultimate reality is a dance, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, knowing and loving each other, that means that ultimate reality is about love. It's about relationships. That relationships aren't just the means to an end, they are the end. Think for, for a moment just how disconnected that reality might be from the daily life experience of people living in the GTA. Think of how many people are trapped, or how many jobs, not just on the corporate side, but the labor side, the creative side. How many jobs are structured so that when you are doing really well, there is no time for relationships. There is no time. When you're at the height of your money-making and advanced periods, you just don't have time, not for friendships, not for marriages. Marriages break up at astounding rates, and, and we're all affected by this. I mean, Jesus was spot on when he, when he said that it turns out you have to lose yourself in order to find yourself. I think he's only describing what, 
what he had lived, the reality from all eternity, that he'd lost that sense of, uh, of the world revolving around him. Instead, he'd lived in a reality where he and God the Father and the Holy Spirit are a movement around one another. When you insist that the world revolve around you, you are running against the grain of the universe. Not only do you get splinters, but you actually come up empty. But if it turns out that the world wasn't created by an individualistic, solitary God, it's not the the result of some impersonal force. It's not an accident of violent random forces. It was made by a God who is at the most basic nature communal and loving and relational. Then the world is a dance. And our greatest need, more than anything else, is, is to learn to live that way. So what do we mean by the the dance, the divine dance. Uh, let, me, uh, let me have you open your Bibles up again. Mark chapter 1. Okay. As you have that open, we're going to come there in a second. Remember, so we're going to come back to the word glorify. What are they doing? Father, Son, Holy Spirit, well, they're glorifying one another. The Bible is filled with that word, to glorify. We love using it. We love singing it. Great singing today. Uh, glorifying God. What do we mean? Uh, is it one of those words that's so religious that we can't define it anymore? It, it's hard, actually, to nail down. But let me, let me try in very shorthand form. To glorify means, I think, uh, that the ideas of beauty and duty are, are bound up together. And unless you understand both sides of that, you're somehow not honoring the full range and impact of the word to glorify. Beauty and duty. Beauty means you adore something. Your imagination is captured by it. You, you find something gorgeous or praiseworthy or uh, you just enjoy being in the presence of that thing, that person. You dote on it. You're not glorifying something if you don't find it beautiful. But it's more than just beauty. It's also duty. Because you're not glorifying someone if you're only connected to them superficially or conditionally. You say, I'll, I'll be with you as long as I'm getting something out of it, some, some benefit. That's not glorifying them. That's not encircling them. That's you, again, being stationary, asking that they orbit around you. Now, because God doesn't seek his own glory, but seeks the glory of others... Father, Son, Holy Spirit, encircling each other, glorifying each other, praising each other. It means that, that at the most basic level of raw existence, God is filled with love and joy and relationship. Infinitely happy. And the invitation, the invitation is to invite people into that experience. Why would, why would God create a world at all? I mean, if your understanding of God is that he's solitary and, and, and he's unipersonal, then, then maybe the only explanation is, well, we're going to create people so that they can worship me and I can care for them. But if God is Trinitarian, he already has that. He already has relationship and joy and love and beauty and fullness. The answer for creation, the only answer that I can think of, is that he created people not to, 
Not to get something in return, but to give something. To invite them into that dance. Say, listen, if you join us in this circle of glorifying and adoring and loving and enjoying, if you step into the dance, that's the fullness and richness of what life meant. You weren't just made to to believe in some sort of general way or be spiritual in some sort of general way or, or, or get a little bit of inspiration every once in a while or just pray when things are tough. You were made to center your life around God who remarkably centers his around you. That's the dance. Life is a dance, and more than anything else, it's a dance that you were built for. Maybe that's all kind of mind-blowing, and it's a little bit too much for a Sunday morning in January, but let me just ask that one last question. I mean, how, how do you get involved in that? How do you learn the steps? Who's your teacher? The answer, of course, because it's always the only answer in church is Jesus, but let me show you why. You've got your, your Bibles open to Mark. Let's look at verses 12 and 13. At once, the Spirit sent him out into the wilderness. And Jesus was in the wilderness for 40 days. What's going on there? It's being tempted by Satan. He was with wild animals. And God's messengers, the angels, attended him. Remember I said a few minutes ago, actually more than a few minutes, at the beginning of the message that, that Mark is giving us a recap of the whole history of the world. Think about it. You go back to the book of Genesis, the opening pages of God's story of creation. It says the spirit is moving across the face of the waters. God speaks, creation comes into being, history is launched, and there's the world. Beautiful, diverse filled with life, and and God looks at it and says, it's good. It's very good. What's the next thing that happens? Adam and Eve in the garden, Satan, temptation, fall, ejection from the garden. Now let's replay that history in Mark's gospel. Here in the very first moments of the ministry of Jesus, what do we see? He comes up out of the water. The spirit hovers, flutters, moves over him. God speaks. And bingo, same thing happens. Satan, temptation, trial. But notice the difference. And boy, there is a big difference between the first Adam and the second Adam, which, by the way, is one of the names for Jesus, the the second Adam. First Adam was in a garden. The second Adam is stuck in the wilderness. First Adam gets to name all the cool animals. Second animal, second to Adam, surrounded by wild beasts. That's probably Mark's way of saying, listen, this situation Jesus is facing is infinitely harder than any probation human beings have faced before. And of course, the temptation doesn't end here in verse 13. It goes on throughout the ministry of Jesus. He's constantly being assaulted by Satan. It comes to a head, a conclusion, a climax, if you'd like, in the Garden of Gethsemane, which really is the anti-garden to what happened in Eden. It's where everything begins to reverse. In that that alt-garden, if you'd like, uh, think of the test. 
that Jesus has given. To the first Adam, God says, I want you to obey me about the tree. Don't eat from the tree. Adam says, well, why? And, and God just wants to say, you know, just trust me in this. Don't go your own way, the way of the individual. Trust me in this. Let's, let's stick together in this. You know, we can look at Adam and Eve and think, what idiots? Why would they ever listen to Satan? Yet, we still have Satan's lie in our own heart. Because we're afraid. We're afraid of trusting God like that. We're afraid of letting go. We're afraid of a world where we are not the center and things don't orbit around us. It's the lie at the heart of the great temptation. Satan will do everything that he can to convince people that that's just the way the world works. I mean, it doesn't, of course. When our relationships started to go wrong in Eden, first with God, and and then it happens politically between nations, and then relationally between races and classes and social systems come under strain, and then it happens personally between friends and family members. They're always blowing up. Why? Because we all want to be the center. Imagine a solar system where every planet insists that everything revolve around them. That's not a solar system. That's a solar cataclysm. It's a catastrophe. And if you ask what is so catastrophic about our world, that's it. But God doesn't let the story end there. Son of God is born into the world, the second Adam. Now think about this. God says to the first Adam, I want you to obey me about the tree. He says the same thing to Jesus in his ministry. I want you to obey me about the tree. This time, the tree is the cross. To Adam, he said, obey me about the tree and you'll live. To Jesus, he says, obey me about the tree and you'll be crushed. And it happened. And I want you to consider this. When, when Jesus died, what was in that for him? And why would he do that? Maybe we say, oh, well, he's getting lots of worshipers. Remember, he doesn't need that. He's already part of this beautiful community of who God is. What did he get out of it? Us. What did he get from dying for us? Us. He encircled us. That's what salvation is. That, that we who had lost hold of God now find God encircling us. What he'd been doing within the Godhead for all eternity now is happening within humanity, encircling us. Not because he's getting anything out of it, but because that's just who God is. And, and the degree that, that begins to settle into your mind and moves you out of fear, breaking from the satanic lies about how to really get ahead in the world, unsticking you and, and, and getting you into an orbit that places God in the beautiful divine mix. That's, that's when the dance begins to happen. Jesus moves towards us. That's the beginning of the dance towards the cross. We move towards him. That's repentance and faith. He moves back towards us again, dotes on us, delights in us, not because of good works, just because it's who he is. In the Gospel of John in chapter 17, we're going to end with, with this. There's a place where, where Jesus says, and he's in prayer. He says, Father, I've given them, you, 
I've given them the glory that you gave me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. There it is. He glorifies us. He says, Father, I know now that you will love them even as you have loved me. You're precious to your creator. The Bible describes you as, as a bride adorned for a groom. That's what, that's what reality looks like. And, and those who have learned to step onto the dance floor and encircle him and live a life in that reality, there is joy unquenchable there. And there is solace in times of adversity. Romans 8 says, The Spirit of God bears witness within us that we're children of God. And it means that sometimes, sometimes if we listen with spirit-tuned ears, you might even hear that voice or that constellation of voices whisper into your own life, This is my beloved child with whom I'm well pleased. Let's pray to him now. God, you've given us this staggering, baffling, moving, challenging description of what what reality is, of what eternity looks like, of of what the divine is all about. It's hard to get our heads around it, God. We're so conscious of, of how our own brains, as formidable as they are, are only a vast microcosm of, of who you are. But we trust you, Lord. We trust you in this. And we trust you as we take those first halting steps into that great divine dance. Jesus, lead us. Holy Spirit, equip us. Heavenly Father, encircle us. Allow us to experience the the rapture and the wonder of what it means to be part of, of who you are. And we will give you glory and praise. World without end. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.